0: Book of Revelation, chapter 9. <clears throat> if I haven't met you, my name's Campbell, pastor here at Cornerstone Church, and we are continuing our series this morning on the Book of Revelation. I kind of like being out open onto the street, but I suppose in midwinter it might be a bit of a challenge, <laughs> but uh, it, it's kind of nice. Isn't it great to hear the praises of God go out the door? into the community. I hope some people have heard that as they've passed today. And we are continuing our series on Revelation. We're up to chapter 9. And this is uh, one of the strangest chapters in a strange book. And so if you've just logged in this morning and you're new to this series or you're new to the Bible, this is going to be quite a wild ride for you. But such important things here. What we are reading here is the Word of God. This is God speaking to us. This is God teaching us about our world and about heaven and what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world. God wrote this so that we would understand what is going on in our lives and around us. And so let's pay close attention to the Word of God here today. Now, I'll never forget my first class in geology in February 1988 at the University of Western Australia. And all the students were sitting there in the lecture theatre and the first thing the professor said to us was, two out of three of you will not be here by the end of the year. Now that was an encouraging start to the year, wasn't it? Two out of three of you won't be here at the end of the year. And I was one of those two (laughs) out of three. And in fact, I'm still a student at the University of Western Australia and every time I open my, my student page, it says, uh, Bachelor of Science, incomplete, <laughs> progress, unsatisfactory. <laughs> every time I open that page, it's still sitting there. And that, that was a hard thing, that was a hard thing to hear, but the professor was telling us a hard thing because sometimes we need to be warned about the challenges ahead. And I shared with you in an email this week that I do believe that there is quite a, a bit of pressure on pastors to give feel-good messages, uh, to, to make the church feel uplifted and happy, to leave the church with a, on a high, with a buzz in the air, of a buzz of happiness. And the fact is that sometimes our Heavenly Father has to say hard things, difficult things to us, And Revelation 9 is certainly one of those passages. And I believe that this is especially important for our young people. Especially important for you. Because if you don't understand what is going on in the world, if you don't understand what's going on in the spiritual world, if you don't understand what God is doing in the world and what evil is doing in the world, then you're going to fall over. Your Christian faith is not going to survive. When evil comes and when the fierce challenges come, you're not going to remain standing if you don't understand exactly what is happening. And that is why God is telling us these hard things. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to equip us to be able to stand firm when trials and hardships and evils come. And so we must all give careful attention to this, especially our young people. I'm picking it up at Revelation 8 from verse 13, where John, the Apostle John, who is the, the scribe of the book of Revelation, writes, As I watched, now this is a vision, it's a vision. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair. And that word eagle could also be translated vulture. Same word, eagle, vulture. A bird that that feeds on carrion, on dead bodies. It's an omen of doom, basically. An eagle in mid-air. Calling out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe. Desolation. Tribulation upon the earth. That's what that word woe means. Disaster. Is coming. Catastrophe is coming. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And last week we heard the first four trumpet blasts and we saw the the devastation that, that came on the earth with those four trumpet blasts. And now we come to the fifth trumpet blast and it's prefaced with that that eagle that vulture crying out whoa this is going to be awful this is going to be hard and I'll tell you now that I'm not going to do all of chapter 9 because I just can't I can't do the whole chapter in one morning so we're going to look in particular at verses 1 to 11 at the fifth trumpet and then we're going to pick up those final couple of verses verses 20 and 21 let me pray Lord Jesus you give us this word because you love us and I pray that you may bless us now with open ears and soft hearts to hear and understand and to receive what you're saying in your name we pray, Amen. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth and that word sky it's the same word for heaven. So it's a star falling from heaven to the Earth, and the star the star personifies a, a, an angel, probably. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And the word abyss" just means an, an extremely deep space under the ground. And the abyss here is it's hell. It's hell. It's not the lake of fire yet, but it's where Satan and the demons are. That's the abyss, okay? So this, this angel or star comes from heaven to earth and below, and it comes to the gates of hell, the gates of that realm where Satan and the demons are. And he was given the key, it says. Who gives him the key? Well, it comes from heaven. He's given the key from heaven. And when he opened the abyss, now think about that for a moment. The abyss is the abode of, of the devil and, and his demons, and a being sent from heaven and given a key from heaven now unlocks the door of that dreadful abode. A zookeeper... Is not going to unlock the cages of apex predators in the zoo during school holidays, right? It would be catastrophe. And, and what this, this being is doing is, is far, far more deadly and dangerous than that. He's unlocking the gates of hell, the abode of the demons. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. It's an appalling image so far. A great furnace opened and smoke so thick that the the sun and the stars are obscured. And it gets worse. Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth. Now, in the Old Testament, what did locusts represent? Locusts were what God sent in judgment upon Egypt and upon Israel with the prophet Joel. Locusts, on their own, a single locust, absolutely harmless. In fact, some people would say delicious. Some people (laughs) eat them, in fact. But a, a swarm of locusts is extremely dangerous. And in the news... This week there are those terrible locust swarms in Kenya and they say even a moderate-sized swarm of locusts will eat enough, will eat so much food in one day, depriving 35,000 people of their daily food. They eat the equivalent of 35,000 um, meals, three meals a day each day. And so they are they're, they're dangerous People die of starvation after locusts come. And what are the locusts doing here? They are symbolising demons. They're symbolising evil spiritual beings. So so please don't think that that Revelation is is saying that one day in the future a, a gap will open in the earth and actual locusts will come. It's not saying that. It's saying that right now... Demonic beings are being released and they are being symbolised by locusts which devour and are dangerous. But these are no ordinary locusts. They were given power like that of scorpions of the earth and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. In other words, these demon locusts are commanded, don't... Eat your ordinary food. Don't eat what you would ordinarily eat. There's something else that you are given to devour. Don't harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And you will recall from chapter 7 that 144,000 were sealed That's a symbolic number representing all of God's people through all the ages. And so these demon locusts are told to go and harm everyone except those who have been sealed on the forehead as belonging to God. And they were told not to kill, not to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And five months symbolises Uh, Five in the ancient world, it it, it meant a few. It meant a few. Jesus talked about five sparrows. That's a few sparrows. A few months. A short but acute time of suffering. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. And during those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die but death will elude them. Literally, death will fly from them. They they, they want to die, but but they can't die. And and, and so this is a a dreadful image, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Our God is telling us this is not a future time, this is now. That right now, heaven has allowed for hell to be unlocked and for the demons of hell to run rampant on the earth, symbolised here. As these devouring locusts which sting like scorpions. This is going on now to people we know are being stung with these agonizing stings. It's a, it's a spiritual catastrophe that is being described here. Now there's a, a close in, it's, it's like the camera now zooms in on these. Demon locusts. Look more carefully at them. Verse 7. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. and Some people have pointed out, in fact, that the, the head of a locust somewhat resembles the head of a horse. These are fearsome locusts. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold. In other words, they, they, they come with the... The semblance of, of, of being, of, of rulers, or even as victors. They look like victorious rulers in, in some sense. And they have human faces. So so don't expect these, these demon locusts to be uh, so appalling that someone is going to shudder and run away from them. In fact, they will be crowned and have a human face and even have... Long hair, it says, like women's hair. In other words, they will appear attractive. There's a sense in which they will appear attractive. What did Paul say about Satan? When Satan appears to people, how does he appear to people, says Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 11? as Not as a, a fearsome red creature with the hindquarters of a goat and a... And a tail and a pitchfork and horns and a goatee beard and, and all of that, kind of that ridiculous caricature that came out of the Middle Ages. When the devil appears, he will appear like an angel of light. Something beautiful, something attractive. And so here's this, this great paradox that these terrible demon locusts, which sting and cause torture and agony, will appear... Attractive. People won't flee from them, they'll be somewhat drawn to them. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. A human being with mere human power cannot overcome them, they're strong, invincible. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. And again, I can't stress enough that it is wrong to read this as this is something that's going to happen in a hundred years, a thousand years' time. This is revelation. It's revealing what's happening around us. This is happening around us. The curtain is pulled aside so that we can see what's going on in the spiritual realm around us. And people you know and love are being afflicted in this kind of way. And they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. His name is given in Hebrew and Greek because the devil, the king of the demons, has been active from the beginning through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. And Abaddon, it's a place of destruction. It, always, it often goes with the word Sheol, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And the Greek translation is Apollyon, destroyer. So this is our Heavenly Father pulling aside the curtains so that we can see what is going on around us. And the burning question is, why? Why? would heaven unlock hell? Why would heaven unlock hell and allow demonic... Beings, invisible demonic beings, to spread across the earth and to sting and torture and to cause agony? Why would heaven allow that? And the answer to that question is found in verses 20 and 21. Look carefully there. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. That's the key, right there. That's the key to understanding. The reason heaven unlocks hell is so that people on earth who don't know the living God, who don't know Christ, who are going to die and face final judgment... And suffering forever and ever and ever, and we'll see that more more clearly in the latter chapters of the Book of Revelation. Heaven allows a taste of hell now on earth. People are given a taste of hell now. Why? Because God is sadistic? No. Because God wants to wake people up. This is, is your terrible, terrible future. This, this is the destiny of all people who die without Christ, an eternity in hell. And so, God, in His mercy, gives people a taste of hell now so that they will see how awful it is and how much suffering that brings. It's God. Waking people up to their need for Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Look again at those last two verses. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, including that locust plague of demons, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. And I want to finish this morning's message by, by thinking carefully how do these hellish demons, who may appear very attractive but who cause untold agony, how exactly do they sting people? How exactly do they cause suffering to people? Well, it's it's, it's there. It's built in there in verses 20 and 21. One way they do that is by leading people to idolatry. That's That's one way in which they sting and harm and torture people. They lead them to idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? We always think of idolatry as um, foreign peoples bowing down before statues of stone and wood, and that is in fact referred to here, and that is in fact one form of idolatry. My pastor in Perth told me a story of a, a young man in his church from Southeast Asia, and his parents had in fact stone idols in their living room. And the young man became a Christian and he went into the living room and he took the the stone idols that his parents had been passed down through the generations and that his parents had in a prized part of the house and revered these statues. He took them and he smashed them on the ground and he shocked his parents and he said, look, look how false these things are. They can't look after you. They can't even look after themselves. Look, I've just smashed them. Why would you put your trust in something that, that I've just taken and smashed on the ground? And, and indeed, that is how ridiculous it is to bow down before things of stone and wood. They can't even look after themselves, let alone us. But that's, that's one way in which the demons attack people. This is your God. Bow down before this. Worship this. Put your trust in this. And that leads to nothing but a hopeless despair at the end of the day. But of course the other, way, the other form of idolatry is to take the true God and to distort him. And to forget that the true and living God came to earth and took on flesh and was born as a baby in Bethlehem and died on a cross in Golgotha and rose to life. And and, and demons would like to obscure that and would like to say that God could never be like that. God would never do that. That isn't the true God. Well, that is to torture people. That's to cause agony because this is our only hope. Jesus Christ is our only hope. And so if, if, if these demons from hell are able to obscure us from him, take us from him, then we lose our only hope for salvation, forgiveness and eternal life. And that brings in our hearts a kind of agony, torture, despair. Where do I go after I die? What will happen to me? Well, you don't know if you don't know Christ. And so these, attra- these demons who devour and sting, but who appear very attractive, <laughs> seduce people away from the true and living God. They sting when they cause people to murder. And in the Bible, murder is not just sticking a knife into someone. It, is, it includes hating someone, It includes being greedy. Being greedy is a kind of murder because I'm not giving to to others what they need and God's given me to share with others for their, their good and their well-being. Unforgiveness. That's a kind of murder. And these demons seduce us into that. And you and I, we know, don't we, how unforgiveness creates such a bitterness within us, such a torment, such inner turmoil, sleeplessness. And this is how demons sting and harm. Unforgiveness, it appears, attractive. I have the power if I don't forgive my brother or sister. But that is to lead to terrible distress. Sexual immorality appears so attractive, Look, it promises joy and life. But we know that it it, it turns to ashes, always turns to ashes, always brings pain one to the other, and and lifelong pain. Watching a documentary the other day of a a woman who had grown up in the 80s and had bought into the the whole sexual freedom thing of the 1980s. And she said, she's now in her 40s, she's saying, sometimes I think that adult life, all, all my adult life is, is trying to get over the pain of being a teenager and trying to get over the mistakes and pain caused to me and that I caused to others when I was a teenager. And this, this is so true, isn't it? And, and, and the demons hold out sexual immorality. This is attractive. There's life and joy in this but there isn't, and it leads to this kind of torment that is described here. I I hope you can see, brothers and sisters, what our Heavenly Father is saying to us today. He's saying that in his astonishing wisdom and love, and we would never dream of doing this But in his astonishing wisdom and power and love he gives people a taste of hell so that they will taste the bitterness of it and and, and want to spit it out. He gives people a taste of hell so that they will do all in their power not to go there. When they die, he gives people a taste of hell, so that when the Saviour holds out his hand and says, I, I, "I came to deliver you from hell and from its torments," that people will repent of their sin and take hold of him. By the way, it's not a very it's not a very optimistic uh, prognosis here, is it? It says that that people wouldn't repent, just go on being tormented just hardening themselves to the torment and refusing to repent. But we can pray for something better. And Jesus Christ holds out his hands to every single one of you today, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, and he says, the time has come. You know this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe the good news and you will be freed freed from sin and its awful, awful consequences well in a moment we're going to come to the Lord's table and this will be a time to do exactly that a time of repentance and turning with renewed faith or new faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll ask our musicians to come up and sing our our second last song as we come into the communion time of communion thank you